Welcome back, everyone. I am Dr. James Ahrens, the ADHD author and veterinarian. Being ADHD, I am most comfortable inside a carefully structured world where my mental images, inner dialogues, and preconceived convictions become my go-to places. A satisfying emotional glow fills me while I am in this bubble, creating a buzz that gives me the courage to foster outside connections. Shaky at first, this courage reaches out to thrive or die, depending on my perceived reception or dismissal. This is especially true with personal relationships. Here's an early song from my wife, Mary McGregor, that summarizes these thoughts. Chapter 12, Aiming for Veterinary School. During my career, I've had four pre-vet students working for me to help them gain veterinary experience. Two of the students were overwhelmed with the prerequisite requirements and went into other fields. I was asked to recommend the other two for admissions into vet school. My support didn't help because their grades and GRE scores put them too far down on the entries list. Apparently, these kids didn't have a fear of failing in them. They never realized their career choice might not happen merely because they didn't put in enough effort. When I was a student, I recognized I needed to focus and work hard on every test, paper, assignment, and class. Every grade counted. Many years later, Patty told me she still had nightmares about her years at UCI. 
Sometimes she dreamed she showed up for a class, was given a test she'd forgotten about, and ended up flunking. Or she was signed up for a class, usually a math class, she didn't know about, found out too late to drop it, and suddenly she was desperately trying to catch up in the middle of the semester. A lot of the terror was self-imposed pressure, but it made us succeed. Everyone in our pre-vet group at UCI worked as hard as he or she could. We did what it took to get our best grades. We had to do this, because failure to get into vet school was not an option. I never felt I was brilliant, especially at UCI where I was among geniuses. The intellectual intensity is palpable when a hundred plus students in a lecture hall focus on hard science. I learned how to discipline myself to achieve my goal. Every person in our UCI group eventually made it to UC Davis. One of them struggled big time as we matriculated through vet school, but all of us became veterinarians. I felt a sense of relief when fall semester of my senior year began at UCI. I had completed the required courses for vet school, and I had taken the GRE. I was now working on my vet school application. I continued to work on Saturdays with Dr. Seeley. One Saturday, we had a slow afternoon. We worked three calls before lunch, but had none after. Doc drove us to his office in Cerritos, and I spent the time cleaning up his truck. The two most used drawers looked like junk drawers, with a hodgepodge of needles, syringes, ophthalmic cream, surgical blades, and suture materials all tossed in together. I meticulously organized these as best I could. When I cleaned out the medicine refrigerator in another compartment, I was surprised to find the contents were warm. Here were medical supplies, mainly vaccines, but also antibiotics, which required refrigeration to maintain their viability. I went in and asked Doc if he knew his fridge was out of order. Yeah, he replied. It's been out for a while now. When do you plan on getting it fixed? Soon, was his reply. I hadn't gone into the refrigerator because I never knew what vaccinations or meds Doc was going to need. Now I wondered if the broken-down fridge was the reason why the tetanus vaccine Doc gave Susie had not worked. I was in a dilemma. On one hand, I could see the possible cause of the death of my horse. On the other hand, I appreciated how much insight, enthusiasm, and direction I obtained from my experience with the doc. In the end, I left it alone. I still met up with Doc Seeley after the refrigerator incident, but I wanted to branch out and become more familiar with other facets of large animal medicine. I asked Doc if he knew a vet who worked on cattle. Frank Walton, he's a dairy vet in Norco. He worked here out of the same office with me when the cows were here in Cerritos. Cerritos had a dairy? It was the dairy shed for Los Angeles, when it was called the city of Dairy Valley. But population encroachment pushed them out to Norco and Corona. I know a lot of them advantageously cashed in on the high prices residential property commanded. Anyway, the developers decided Cerritos was a better sounding name than Dairy Valley. Dr. Walton moved to Corona with the dairies. I called his office to see if I could tag along. The first day I shadowed him, he took me to a farm store and bought me a pair of rubber boots. One cannot perform dairy work without these boots. There is manure everywhere, sometimes an inch thick, pooling on the concrete runway of the barn. We wore the boots with just socks, no shoes, and Doc always had a pair of coveralls on. Working with dairy cattle meant getting lots of manure on every part of you. Cows are milked every 12 hours, usually between 4 and 5 in the morning and 4 and 5 in the afternoon. A dairyman's life rotates around this schedule seven days a week. Doc's routine started after the morning milking when the cows were brought up into the stanchions inside the barn. The girls are fed while in this holding area and eagerly push their heads through the angled vertical bars to get to the food. 
Once the cows are happily munching, a lever is moved to lock them into place, efficiently catching the cow at her neck. The space between the two vertical bars is now too small for her to pull her head out and prevents her from backing up and leaving. The first day I spent with him, Doc was doing routine reproductive stuff. Milk only comes when a baby is born, so these girls are rebred as quickly as possible. Doc put his long plastic sleeve onto his left arm to rectically check each cow in the lineup. Walking behind the first cow, he grabbed the tail a foot or so from the body with his ungloved hand and pushed upward, making the tail flag high in the sky, leaving the rectal area wide open. Next, he closed the fingers together in the gloved hand to form a triangular point at the end of his glove, allowing him to push his hand through the winking butthole safely. Once past the first rectal constriction, he opened his hand scooping handfuls of feces out, making the green shit fall from the rectum to the floor. Why do you do that? I asked. It gives me room to maneuver my hand. I need to twist it here and there, and I don't want to be working through this muck every time I rearrange, he replied. He needed room inside so he could safely advance his entire arm into the cow's rectum. You have to push hard at first, he explained, because the cow automatically strains against the initial intrusion. There is an automatic reflex in most mammals, keeping the anal sphincter tightly closed against any outside, untoward visitations, he said. I looked at him to see if he was joking, but he remained serious, focusing on the cow. This is the time the palpator must maintain the wrist rigid, in line with the rest of the arm. The rectal push then comes from the bent elbow, slowly unbending into a straight line as the wiggling fingers make their way deeper into the mama bovine's rectum. Doc wiggled his hand and then his arm inside the rectum, eventually up to the mid-humerus. He was now so deep inside he could palpate the kidney. The wall of the rectum is sturdy yet thin enough for Doc to feel the outlines of other organs. Now that she was all cleaned out, to his liking, Doc pulled backward to restart his exploration, explaining the details as he groped. Once I have room to work, I find the cervix, feeling for it at the front of the rim of the pelvic bone. It has a solid cylindrical shape. It's the first thing I feel for, he said, with his forearm in halfway, his elbow still bent. I'm turning my hand back and forth on the rim of the pelvis here, feeling for a giant kielbasa. If you're up to your shoulder in the cow and still can't find the cervix, you're too far in. Move back until you can feel the cylindrical object below your fingers. It's important to identify the cervix. I nodded, trying to visualize what he was explaining. I didn't realize it at the time, but this visualization in my mind, interpreting what my fingers are feeling, is the backbone of veterinary medicine. Palpation is the vet's most critical tool. Finding the cervix is crucial, he repeated. If you don't feel one, then back off and check the sex. Sometimes the dairymen play games and set up a steer in the stanchion. These are males. They do not have cervixes. You will forever be the brunt of bad jokes if you call a steer not pregnant, he finished. I was afraid to ask him if someone told him this or if it was first-hand knowledge. My fingers follow the uterus just in front of the cervix. The uterus is where I feel for evidence of a baby. If the cow is open, in other words, not pregnant, I can walk along the uterine horns to locate the ovaries, he explained. His arm was straight out. He was in past his elbow. Once I grab a follicle, I palm it, run my fingers on it, feeling for hardness. I try to identify a water-filled bubble. That's a follicle. And it means the cow is ready to ovulate an egg. She's ready to breed. If so, she is considered to be coming into heat, 
and sent for breeding are artificial insemination. If she is pregnant, can you tell how far along the baby is? I asked. He nodded. If you feel the uterus is distended, with a small oval ball of liquid floating inside of it, that's a fetus. The cow is pregnant. The baby is the size of a mouse at two months, a large cat at five months, and the size of a beagle at seven months. Doc Walton was sometimes called out earlier in the morning. The dairyman knew there was a problem if a cow wasn't in place for her milking. A cow who has become too weak to stand and walk is called a downer cow. I assisted in working up a few of these cases. One had milk fever. The sudden hormonal changes occurring after calving induce a massive shift in blood calcium levels as the cow gears up for milk production. Besides feeding babies, calcium is needed to make muscles move. When calcium levels fall too far in the bloodstream, the cow is unable to move those muscles. She falls and is unable to stand up. They are fun to treat. Injecting a calcium solution into the jugular vein normalizes the cow within five minutes. It was neat to see a cow get up and walk away after Doc gave her a kick with his boot while he was pulling his drip set from her. Another cow presented with a prolapsed uterus after she calved. The uterus was about as big as a giant pumpkin and had to be washed off and pushed back into the vagina, so it would drop back into place within the abdominal cavity. During January of my senior year, I realized I needed small animal experience. Dr. Seeley suggested I look up Glenn at Grand Avenue Pet Hospital in Santa Ana. Glenn had also driven with Dr. Seeley and was now the x-ray technician there. I worked closely with Glenn as his assistant. By assigning a volunteer such as myself to help him, paid workers were freed up to perform other tasks. Taking x-rays of animals requires two holders. One person holds the front legs of the dog or cat and the other the back legs. The holders wear leaded gloves and aprons and an x-ray badge. The badges are explicitly assigned to one person to keep track of the x-ray dosage received at the neck level each month. An opening for a paid overnight caretaker became available at Grand Avenue Pet Hospital for Friday and Saturday nights. I applied for and received the job. I worked between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m., mopping floors, doing laundry, and taking the temperatures of the hospitalized patients. It was tedious work done at an ungodly hour, but I needed more experience, and this could be my foot in the door for better opportunities. End of chapter. With my career yearnings on course, I return my attention to the ladies in my life. Seeing a distant idea as a possibility, my ADHD mind hyperfocuses on long-shot opportunities. My inner dialogue amplifies worries and expectations a hundredfold, but when I fixate the thought into my daily mantra, I am able to block common sense from dimming my new Wizard of Oz mirage. This was especially true with women I was interested in knowing better. Adding testosterone to this volatile mix, I lost ordinary sense, spending weeks, sometimes months, running after a particularly unattainable woman, thinking I would nab her any day now.
Chapter 13 Terminal Naivety For unknown and unfathomable reasons, both Larry and Patty continued to befriend me, probably because they just started dating and I was the commonality. In January, Larry asked if I wanted to go with them on a ski trip to Mount Baldy. At dark 30, I met Larry and Patty for breakfast at a coffee shop near Patty's home. He drove us up there in Patty's orange, sporty muscle car. I cannot recall the name. It did have four tires for snow chains and seats for four people. It also had rain gutters above the doors where Larry fitted his ski racks to hold the skis. I thought it looked cool, especially when we were going up the hill with the other cars. The ski bums called it Ski Mountain. These other cars had skis on their ski racks too. There was a definitive sporty purpose to this top load, proclaiming a statement about how cool the occupants were. Now I was inside being cool too. This gear was so boss, way more radical than a bunch of amorphous packages perched precariously on a car's rooftop reminiscent of people driving west from the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. Moreover, it was not a hodgepodge of household items that embarrassingly flew out of a car carrier when a family of nine people and one dog traveled to California. These racks held specialized equipment. We drove one and a half hours to Mount Baldy. Patty and I went to the rental shack to rent skis while Larry waited outside on his skis. The entire day was full of new challenges that have become a blur in my memory. I spent 80% of my time pulling myself upright with my ski poles after losing balance and crashing into the snow, usually face first. I needed to be able to balance my skis without falling, and then I needed to use my skis to move forward. After that, I needed to learn how to grab onto a tow rope to pull me uphill, so I could ski down the hill again. All this was preliminary stuff, found out on the beginner bunny slope. We hadn't gotten anywhere close to the ski lifts yet. Finally, the ultimate test for a novice lay in front of me. Larry asked me to go on a chairlift with him. A two-person chairlift is surprisingly occupied by two people. People queued up in a side-by-side line. The lift was circling behind the line, and during the intervals between chairs, the next pair of skiers shuffled quickly to the lift-off spot, each person looking away from the other to focus on the outside bar attached to the seat. When the chair hits the back of the knees, the outer hand grabs the bar, and the pair is scooped up and carried aloft to the new heights on the hill. If one of the passengers is uncoordinated and needs additional help, the lift operator slows or even stops the lift, allowing the troubled skier extra time to find a seat. Once squarely on the chair, the operator resumed normal speed. It was exciting sitting way above the ground with my feet dangling, my skis in midair. However, ski lifts only transport a person a set distance. At the end of the lift, person must dismount from the chair smoothly and fluidly, so the exit runway does not become cluttered with fallen bodies. If the dismount piles grow too large, the lift operator at the top of the hill stops the lift to allow the collection of fallen athletes to regather. I agreed to go up the chairlift with Larry, that's what skiers do, and I was going to be a skier. Good thing the operator was patient. After spending more time than most people on my stops and starts, he delivered Larry and me to the top of the lift. Now it was time to stand up and ski down the off-ramp, away from the moving chair. Guiding me by holding my elbow, Larry helped me slide down the 20-foot ramp to the gathering point at the top of the run. I was blown away by the view at the top. A whole new vista opened up to me. I could see on both sides of our hill. Although my clothes were soaking wet from falling umpteenth times, I was satisfied and happy with this sport and thanked Larry for bringing me. We made our way down the slope, found Patty, packed up, and went home. The next day, Larry came over, and we talked about the event. I thanked my good friend for showing me a wonderful weekend. 
My stomach muscles were so damn sore I couldn't laugh without wincing in pain. It hurt like hell when he started joking about how much fun we had. The funnier the joke, the worse the pain. During this last winter quarter, I signed up for neurobiology and I met Suzanne. The class material explored the new field of the biology of the mind. The UCI was at the forefront of this new area of study. Although I didn't need the class for vet school, I still needed it to complete my bachelor's of science at UCI. The course had a lab as well as lectures, but these weren't important to me. I wasn't interested in brains. I wanted to understand the other parts better, the parts I would be working on one day. I found the material boring. Because it was so new, it seemed there were very few real concepts formulated. I suppose at the time I was more comfortable building on established theories than blazing trails into unknown areas of science. Suzanne was a pre-med student and did not frequent the coffee break area where the pre-vets hung out. One day, I brought her over to my crowd and introduced her. She was in the process of moving from her house into an apartment. When she heard I was interested in aquariums, she asked me to go along to help pick out a tank and fish for her new place. At the tropical fish store, Suzanne pulled a credit card from her wallet to pay for the items she picked out. I was impressed. Over the next month, we became closer, and she asked if I could help her with difficulties she was having in our neurobiology class. She needed help formulating a research paper on a particular topic. It was a required assignment for everyone. I finished mine quickly because it was similar to the literature searches I had done at USC. Towards the end of the quarter, Suzanne told me she was having trouble putting together an outline and wanted to borrow my paper to help her clarify her ideas. I proudly handed her my finished manuscript. Larry and Patty invited me to come on a camping trip to San Onofre State Beach. I said I would try to arrange a camping mate and would meet them down there. I called up Suzanne, who declined the date. I was insisted and she relented. She told me she was working at May Company at Laguna Hills Mall and would be off at 9. I drove to the store about 8.45 and walked in letting her know I had arrived. I'll be out as soon as I finish closing duty, she said. I returned to the car, reviewing my evening so far. San Onofre Beach was 45 minutes south of Laguna Hills Mall. I just needed to turn right on El Toro Road and south on Highway 5. Yep, we would be sitting around the campfire, drinking, laughing, kissing, and starting all types of fun stuff in just about an hour. Suzanne finally came out and walked over to my car in her high heels. Hop in, I told her. Not yet, she replied. I need to get a blanket for my apartment. Where is that? In Laguna Beach. I'll leave my car there. Follow me. Great, I thought. We have to go in the opposite direction now. We'll get there even later. Oh well. What other choice did I have? I turned the car on and followed her. Because I had been sitting under the parking lot lights for 20 minutes, I was used to the brightness of the car park and hadn't turned on my headlights. Turning left onto El Toro Road, I hadn't gone more than a block before the flashing lights of a police car yelled at me to pull over. Confused, I continued to drive further, running right through a newly changed red light. I pulled to the right and rolled down my window. Noticing it was dark, I turned my headlights on as the officer approached my vehicle. Why don't you have your lights on? he asked. They're on, I replied. He walked to the front of the car and saw the lights were on. Where are you going so fast? He walked back to my window. I have this new girlfriend, I told him, and she agreed to go camping with me at San Onofre State Beach after she picked something up at her apartment. I was trying to follow her. The officer swept his mega-powered flashlight across the back seats in my station wagon. They were all laid down and covered with a four-inch foam pad with two sleeping bags on top. I guess he was impressed with my possibilities. Okay, go on, but make sure you don't speed, he said. 
Pulling in front of Suzanne's apartment, I waited a few minutes and saw she began turning lights off. She came out and got into my car, still wearing her dress, nylons, and high heels. We pulled into San Onofre Beach around 10.30. Patty and Larry were still up, but were readying for bed. Their campfire was burning out and it was getting cold, so we talked for only about five minutes and then retired to our sleeping areas. I took my clothes off and climbed into my sleeping bag. Suzanne pulled her dress and high heels, proceeding to lie down to sleep in her slip and pantyhose. She slept in a mummy position on her back with her hands crossed over her chest. We woke up the next morning at dawn. I drove her back to her apartment. This person is sending me mixed signals, I was thinking on her way back. When the winter quarter was drawing to a close, I asked her if she was done with my paper. She told me no, she still needed it. Finally, a few days before the article was due, I said I needed my writing returned immediately. She delivered it to me and I handed it in. A few days later, I was called to the professor's office. I have two identical copies of one paper, he told me. Suzanne told me you did not understand the material and asked to borrow the paper from her. That's not true, I said. It was my paper. Nonetheless, you both need to turn in a new paper using a different topic. He gave me a new question and I had to do the whole new literature search. I never saw Suzanne again at UCI. I had gained a lot of knowledge with my studies, yet remained naive, immature, and narcissistic. Yet I still didn't realize I had a long way to go to become an adult. It was during the Suzanne debacle I left the apartment Mel and I shared for good. I just walked away. However, I needed a place to sleep at night. The wisest choice would have been to find an apartment occupied by male college students who needed another roommate. Such conventional wisdom was far beyond my comprehension. Deciding to sleep in my vehicle for a while, I parked overnight at the UCI gymnasium parking lot and used the gym facilities to shower. I also parked in front of Dr. Watson's office in Chino and used his bathroom in the morning. Soon, these options became untenable. There was a woman in our UCI morning coffee group, Missy, who offered me a bed in her apartment. Missy was a hippie type. I never did know what her major was, but I assumed it was in biology because that was the focus of the coffee shop group. Missy smoked some hand-rolled cigarettes that reminded me of marijuana joints. She told me she preferred natural tobacco to the dangerous processed cigarettes available. She had a studio apartment with two rooms and a bathroom. I was invited to sleep on a mattress in the corner of the front room. I accepted, but soon I became uncomfortable. Things were just different there. It was empty and ugly, but staying there became a non-option when I went to use the bathroom. It had no door. Missy told me she removed the door because she did not need to hide her habits from people. I was not as comfortable about this as she. When I peed that night, I made sure I hit the side of the bowl so it wouldn't make any noise. I went to my mattress, covered my head with my pillow, and left early the next day to shower at the UCI gym. After Missy, I accepted an offer from Eddie to sleep at his place. The house he lived in was brand spanking new. There was still plain dirt in the yards, and there were no curtains on the windows. The place was sparsely furnished and there wasn't much food in the cabinet. Eddie's family purchased the house as an investment because there was no reason to waste money paying rent to someone else. I was offered a thin mattress in an otherwise bare and bright white room, almost sterile in its newness. There was no living room furniture to relax on. The house was primarily a sleeping place. I never saw anyone home during the day the entire month I stayed. While at Eddie's, I put much effort into developing a relationship with another pre-vet named Martha. She was in my medical physiology class. Those efforts paid off, and soon, she and I were dating. Within a month, I was spending more time at Martha's apartment than at Eddie's. 
Shortly afterward, I relocated to her apartment. It was a simple move as I had few belongings. I hope this would be the end of my nomadic lifestyle. End of chapter. Thank you, Brian, for lending me your voice to my narrative. You bring my memories to life. Thanks also to my dear wife, Mary McGregor, for the music. Your songs quicken my focus, warm my heart, and bring a smile to my face. And thank you, folks, for listening. You can follow the story on my blog, jeadvm.com. I've included pictures there, too. Once on my blog's front page, go to the menu, pick My Books, and click on Fear of Failure. The entire autobiography can be purchased as an old-fashioned paper book or an e-book, as well as an 11-disc audiobook set, or can be downloaded from the audiobook site ACX. More details are on my website, jeadvm.com. Tune in next week to follow more tales of the soon-to-be ADHD veterinarian.